0: Hi everyone, Stuart Shields here and welcome to episode two of the Lick Library podcast. Now, if you're like me and uh, you spend many of your nights awake wondering what you would do if you had a time machine, uh, for me personally, if I had a time machine, I would drop myself into the golden age of the guitar virtuoso, the late 1980s, which I say mid to late 1980s. When I was there I'd probably make a beeline for Hollywood, I'd be straight down the Sunset Strip and I'd be looking for the best bands, the parties, the big-name players. Now, fortunately, I don't need a time machine. I've got something better. I've got a gentleman, a real guitar hero, who's actually there, immersed in the L.A. guitar scene of the late 80s, our very own Mr. Danny Gill. Danny, how are you doing?
1: Hello, Stuart. Yes, after that intro, I feel like I should give it a little... because there was a lot of uh, a lot of good good times a lot of crazy times and uh, I've survived to be here with you today so it's a pleasure this this must have been an amazing
0: time to be a young up and coming guitar player
1: yeah so I <laughs> I moved to Hollywood to go to GIT when I was about 21 but prior to that uh, the whole setup, I happen to grow up in the Bay Area of San Francisco, the Berkeley Bay Area, which is just a real hotbed of great music. There are many hotbeds all over the world, but I really have a place in my heart for the Bay Area and the music scene in the Bay Area. And when I was 13, I guess, Joe Satriani was the guitar player teacher in a local music store. So I managed to hook up with him at a very young age and he was teaching all the kids my age. There was Kirk Hammett, uh, Alex Skolnick, there was uh, Charlie Hunter was around. It was like uh, just a real kind of vibrant scene. I guess uh, I look back with rose colored glasses, but I guess I did happen to be like kind of in the right place at the right time. if I think about the time when I was starting to study with Joe, I mean, of course he was ridiculously great. And he would give me a lot of stuff that I would look at years later and go, Oh, okay. That's what he's talking about. But even so, just a little bit of that magic rubbing off on you, you know, is uh, priceless. So, you know, After the lessons, he would, you know, try out a guitar and try out a pedal. It was in a little music store, literally had a room in the back of the store. And so in addition to the studying kind of stuff, just watching him pick up a guitar and and noodle, you know, what would he play? What would he play when he uh, first picked up a guitar? You know, we were talking about that. That's always fascinating for me. And he just always had the amazing sound you'd have a chorus you'd have a delay and he'd always have total control over the instrument and uh it was always something you know I still try and aspire to uh so yeah it was a very uh conducive environment for getting uh for getting good at least as good as uh, you you could quickly there was never a ceiling on it you never ever ever thought that you would by any means, uh, catch up. But I mean, and you talk to other students too. What are you working on? Oh, I was working on this. He showed me how to play a three-octave G major scale. Three, like, what is that? Three octaves. What does that mean? And I really wish I had all these notes because he wrote stuff out like on graph paper as before everybody had tabs and print stuff out from the internet and everything. So he'd make guitar boxes out of the like mathematic graph paper. Uh, but also modal stuff, you know. I remember being uh, in the music store. We're hanging out talking. There was another guitar player who was great. I think he went on to be a successful uh, studio guy. Just amazing. Here, his name is Michael Boyd. wrote he wrote a lot of jingles. And anyway, so we're in the store, and uh, I would bring Joe stuff that I was into at the time, which was a lot of UFO and scorpions, you know, Michael Schenker or Groth, and that we were listening to. section you know it goes on forever and keyboards are kind of doing that and shanker has got this line which is and we're just listening to it and Joe goes what is scale what scale is that what's that you know in front of everybody in the store and I'm like I kind of hesitated too long. And he's like, it's Dorian. You should know that. (laughs) Even today, I don't know how it is for everybody else, but if you ever have, like you're playing with a keyboard player, you can't see their fingers and they're not doing stuff that sounds guitar oriented and they play something, especially if it's in a non-friendly guitar key. You know, can you hear an E flat? Can you hear that they're doing that kind of a chord progression on the keyboards? Like that, I think is so valuable as a, musician because I think I'm okay with picking up guitar stuff watching other guitar players and listening to other guitar players but when it comes to like other instruments it's like I'm always still trying to develop my ears but I always remember that specific episode with Satriani where he's like you should know that you know I mean he would not let you get away with stuff so he
0: was tough he was tough but he was probably tough to um, put pressure on you yeah you would experience when when you go out to
1: the big wide world he was tough in a loving way. I mean, I think he is tough on himself. You know, he expected great things from himself. So he would want you to take the lesson seriously, for sure. Uh, but so if you think about that, like I was 13, maybe 14. I took lessons from him for a few years, maybe three or four years. But um, it, at that age, to be able to recognize modes, um, you know, I, I did the best I could. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's a modal player, so there'd be a lot of work with those kinds of things. You know, we take little progressions and play over them. Um, I mean, some of the stuff that ended up on some of his recordings, like a... So I'd go home and work on something like that, which is one of his, his pieces. Uh, but yeah, it was very... Uh, I would have to do my homework and he'd let you know if you didn't do your homework, (laughs) but over the course of time through osmosis, you know, things uh, tend to sink in. Yeah. And it sounds like there was um,
0: another really important element of developing as a young player. There was healthy sense of competition there. You mentioned there's other guys there. You, 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 you know, you named Kirk Hammett Uh, Alex Skolnick. These guys are big name players. So having these guys within earshot of you playing, practicing, sharing ideas, it must have really pushed you along. Do you think that
1: really helped? Yeah, like crazy, because everybody would share. They we would show each other lessons, or you know, if you were working on something. Oh no, I haven't got to that yet. And like, oh, why not? Why hasn't he shown me that yet? I guess I'm I'm not worthy. Uh, But recently on Facebook, one of uh, my Facebook friends from the Bay Area posted some of his lessons from Joe, and uh, it was it was great because um, you know he'd have a lesson, and then at the end of the piece of paper, it said something along the lines of. You know, don't let yourself sound bad. (laughs) It was like (laughs) sound advice, but it was like care about what you do. You know, take it take it seriously. You know, be respectful to the music and the instrument. But you know, always, of course, have fun and enjoy it. You know, and I, you know, as a kid, I would bring in stuff that uh, I, I, you, Van Halen. What's that? How's he getting
0: that sound? <laughs> that's that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting to hear because he, he comes across as such a kind of a, a gentle character, Joe, when you see him in interviews. But to to hear these, he's quite the the the, the slave master in a good way, with the yeah. left. He really is well, his students. Steve I often says the same of Joe that he really you know, he made him, if he didn't practice, if he didn't nail that thing that he was assigned, he'd have to go in, he'd have to do it again.
1: That's right. And he, uh, you hear him talking about some of the lessons he had with various teachers. And so I think it's, uh, you know, you pay it forward. That's great. So did you think it yeah. he helped shape you as a, a teacher? Yeah, or, uh, you know, I've always taught guitar and maybe that's for a (laughs) lack of (laughs) creativity to do anything else. (laughs) I'm like, well, uh, you know, at 16 or so, it would be like, well, I can, you know, try and get a job doing whatever it is, or I can go in the back of a guitar store and give lessons. So I went around to guitar stores and said, hey, I can give guitar lessons. and. That ended up working out, so I've kind of always done that. Um, I did have a, an experience in college studying uh, classical guitar. And the teacher at the college was, I mean, I remember going in there for the, the audition and I played like a, it was like play something. And I played like. Uh, Mediterranean Sundance which has some really fast he would uh, he wasn't always very nice about it like if you didn't do something really well it's like there's a way to teach people that doesn't discourage them you have to uh, balance that so I think having some negative experience with taking lessons as well has also taught me as a teacher the importance of making someone you're teaching feel good about what they're doing, regardless of their level. I mean I think everybody who's playing an instrument wants to either try it out and see if they like it and if you're if you don't do it in a respectful way that's going to discourage them from doing it, which I think is really you know shameful. I think that's a really, hurtful thing to do and so i've always had a more supportive like let's be positive with each other let's enjoy the time let's play some music because music is good for the soul it makes me feel good it makes me just uh i mean i think if you've played music you, most people would have the same experience if you enjoy doing it even if uh, you're not like in the moment in the zone and doing the best thing you've ever done just The act of picking up the instrument and being able to do that, I think, is such a powerful thing, an enjoyable thing, and a lifelong experience. You know, if I've been doing this, (laughs) should I say how old I am now? Well. I won't ask. (laughs) (laughs) I've been doing this since I was 12, and that's many, many, many years ago. And I probably have more questions and more desire to get better than I ever did. Um, so I think the question about as did it help me as a teacher? I mean, yeah, for sure. But also the having someone, uh, someone else, this guy that I was referring to, as a classical teacher, and I guess because I was doing more of like a rock thing on the guitar, and it wasn't like what he wanted to hear at all, and he was just not very nice, and that really made me want to do the opposite with my students. Yeah,
0: they can be in the guitar world really surprisingly there can be this this level of uh, elitism mm. aside from the the classical world in the in the rock world you know i've encountered teachers that i've taken lessons from myself that have been very much that you shouldn't show any chinks in your armor that yeah. if you're not on 100 percent all of the time you are failing and um, and it's interesting that you said before about you know, the feeling that you get from playing music and as a teacher that you're all you're trying to do really is give everyone the opportunity to feel that, yeah, because it makes you it makes you a better human being. You know, if we all picked up the guitar and or an instrument and played music,
1: absolutely. Like on an aside to that, I've through the course of being in um, my musical career, my musical journey, I've met and hung out with a lot of very successful. People, not that I'm saying I'm one of those by any means, but I have uh hung out fortunately with people who are really have been really successful. I guess if I was gonna name drop, uh, you know, I was in a band and Stevie, uh, he was St- our manager was Stevie Nicks' personal manager, so so we always got to hang out at her house and enjoy the pool over on Sunset in LA. And she was like the nicest person. I've done a couple of records where Mike Frazier, uh, engineered and mixed and so hanging out a lot with him who was done you name it metallica acdc aerosmith i mean just amazing engineer nicest guy in the world i've had a lunch with jimmy ivine nice nice guy it's the guys that i've come across that are not so nice or the ones that um they have not had that level of a success, or they've been—they haven't had some kind of a joy musically in their life. But I've always found the most successful people that I've met have always been the nicest.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a bitterness with that comes with that—that that lack of success. And I, I suppose uh, you know, if we're on the the topic of, of crushed dreams and failed <laughs> and, and successes, let's, let's let's fast forward to Hollywood. Yeah, because this is. This, For me, this part of your story and your journey, uh, this is the bit that really fascinates me from from the romantic side (laughs) of things, because growing up as a young guitar player, um, hearing stories of GIT and knowing people vicariously who knew other people who went to GIT in the late 80s, the idea of being in a room, being taught by these name players uh, and experiencing this entire culture just surrounded by, just always playing guitar and then partying and watching bands and playing guitar and gigging, the whole thing just sounded phenomenal. But then, as you get older, you hear the the warnings about Hollywood. The <laughs> you know, the you hear the stories of actors going out there to make it big and you know musicians. And so, you, you at the age of was it twenty one decided yeah. to make that move to Hollywood. Um, and did you, did you go out there with the ambition to make it big or was it just to study?
1: Uh, well, I wouldn't say make it big. I just always wanted to play and always wanted to be in a band, uh, and then as the band got more serious, then yeah, you want to try and get a record deal and you want to try and, uh, you know, play in front of big crowds and you want to go that whole route. But I mean, it's always been about this is what I do. This is what I love to do. This is what I want to do. And I don't really know how to do anything else. <laughs> so I'm going to yeah, keep. Well. <laughs> <this>. <laughs> so I'm going to keep at this no matter what. I'm very um Right. So, yes, I think a lot of the fact that I'm still doing this is just cuz I'm stubborn and uh, <laughs> So, uh, it, what took you to Hollywood
0: was was it GIT? Was it
1: just Yeah, it really was like wanting to do something different from the Bay Area thing and it was time. It was time to move out of <laughs> move away from home, and that was a good place I think to do it, to go down to LA, to go to school. Uh, still managed to have the parents help and support because I was still going to school, but then I could also pursue something else in a different environment that I loved. My friend who had gone to GIT before me, his name is Doug Doppel, great guitar player. And he had an apartment and he's like, well, I'm moving back to the Bay Area because I'll be done with school. So if you want my apartment, you can have, you know, you can have that. I'll just give you the lease. And so that just kind of fell into place. I'm like, all right, let's do it. So moved down to live in, a little studio apartment right behind the school and just lived and breathed it for for the year that I was there. Uh, but at the same time, I, always, uh, I went down there originally, some of my friends from the Bay Area, we hooked up uh, still trying to be in a band together. As bands go, you know, things sometimes work out, sometimes they don't. Ended up, <laughs> I lived in Hollywood for the year that I went to school there. Afterwards, I ended up moving down to Huntington Beach. It's about sixty miles away. It's really surf town. Had a, a townhouse down there, uh, which was nice. But then I was too stubborn to leave GIT, so I really butchered. Uh, I really bothered them to give me a job, and so I started with a few teaching hours there and kept getting more and more. So I was kind of commuting back and forth from Huntington Beach to Hollywood, and. Uh, eventually i was started doing some recording with some guys that i hooked up with and we ended up trying to find a singer but living in a warehouse <laughs> <laughs> in long beach which is a little closer to hollywood than Beach, but still very far 45 minutes away but you know traffic in la is just brutal so for years we lived in a warehouse in long beach where we where we rehearsed <laughs> i mean it's funny to think back on it now but we had no shower i'd go take a shower down at the gym we kind of had a hot plate and a microwave it's like the classic story but we loved it i mean it was great it was great the drummer was very good at building stuff he would build Cabinets, so we had like walls of martial-looking cabinets, and he built a loft there. So we all kind of had our little space within the warehouse. But uh, yeah, it's crazy. Like, I wonder what my parents were
0: thinking. <laughs> <laughs> you hear stories like that, though. If you read um, read about Guns and Roses, the early years, they yeah. did the thing. Yeah. You hear about these bands who really got their got their act together and really became tight musical outfits. They would live in a. A shed or a garage or uh, un- under a bridge, you know, where they'd they'd get up, they'd rehearse, they'd go out, they'd come back, and they do it all again.
1: Yeah, and that's that's how it was because we would rehearse every night because that's where we lived. There was no avoiding <laughs> it. Uh, but we recorded a demo, like a three-song demo, because uh, I had a had a friend who was in with a you know good studio, but we didn't have a singer. And the bass player, a good friend, Ian, we're still great, great friends. Uh, he knew a guy where he was from, which was from Minnesota. And so he just sent him the tape, just not really thinking anything of it, just I know a good singer, I'll send it to him, Justin. You never know. And uh, so he liked it. He ended up coming out to, to our warehouse in Long Beach and I remember just sitting in the car, we played the stuff for him and he just started scatting some stuff over it. and it's like, oh my God, this is great. And so we ended up recording. He put vocals on these three songs and uh, my friend had another friend he played it for. So yeah, I just finished recording this. We're not really a band or anything, but here, check it out. And this other guy, Ian played it for, it's like, this is awesome. You have to, I, I have another friend I'm going to give this to. And so we got a call from this guy who, like I was saying, turns out he was Stevie Nicks's personal manager. So he lived on the property with her. So we get a call from this guy. And I mean, really, we had, we're living in a warehouse. We're like, you know, 99 cent taco Tuesdays is like a party for us. Like we have living around like nothing, man. I mean, nothing. And we get a call and he's like, man, this is awesome stuff. Come on up. I want to meet you guys and so we drive me and in drive from the from long beach in our warehouse i had a chevy citation <laughs> if you look up chevy citation it's like <laughs> it's it's like the it got me around but oh my god are you talking about uh, ugly cars oh my goodness it's like you have to park down the streets you don't want to see any have anybody see you in that car but anyway so we drive there and we're into the we're into hollywood And then once you get into Hollywood, you can start going up in the hills. And that's where Beverly Hills are. And we keep going higher and higher and just kind of smile and look at each other like, what is going on? Higher and higher. And uh, we end up going to Stephen Ix's house. It's like, holy shit. You can actually look up this house. It was in um, a Jim Carrey movie where he was a vampire. One of the early Jim Carrey movies. They rented that house, this particular house that she had for that movie. So anyway, we go up there And uh, walk into this, you know, this life. It's like, holy, this is amazing, man. Wow. So anyway, we ended up doing showcases and the singer ended up moving out because we got a lot of stuff going on real quick. And it was a time where, you know, early 90s, there was Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, and Quiet Riot. And uh, I mean, all the bands, like everybody was getting record deals, it seems like, because it was the whole la scene from bands like faster pussycats south gang there i mean just there was tons of it was happening you know and uh so we ended up getting getting a record deal and doing a uh, uh, with atlantic which is a big record label at the time it was just you know it's awesome so we had the Publishing deal, and we had the we got to go into record at AM Studios, which is you know, the like it's an amazing studio right in the heart of of Hollywood. Um, I mean, and in, at AM Studios, like I remember there was uh, U2 was in one room, Raging It's Machine was in another room, and we were in the third room. It's like, <laughs> man, this is this is awesome. So, uh Yeah, we ended up doing the record and it, you know, it did, it did okay. I mean, I think there was a lot of, uh, we toured a lot. It was LA Guns was another band that was like happening at the time. They're kind of still around. So we toured with them and did some bigger shows as well. Um, They like some festival shows with White Snake, Skid Row, Skid Row. I remember playing a, a show with Skid Row at the Whiskey in LA, right when their record hit it was like the first time they came to LA and so we uh you know we opened up for them and it was I mean those were it was good times man
0: <laughs> I bet there's some stories do you, do you have any good backstage stories ones that you are clean enough to share
1: <laughs> that are clean enough to share I'm gonna to have to think about that the ones that are clean enough to share because uh certainly there'd be some backstage stories but um Is this rated PG, or is
0: this? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, come we'll
1: come back to that. It's a good point to move on. <laughs> wait, wait for the, the, the book to uh, to come out. But I'll tell you this. I am very happy that there were no cell phones and no internet at the time. Yeah yeah don't, don't worry, don't worry this won't this won't the too. Internet comes back to bite me in the ass enough already. so yeah
0: this, uh, we, we are not going to title the podcast Confessions of Danny Hill.
1: Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you have lots you of good pictures out there you can <laughs> you can put up there. yeah if anybody wants to get a laugh, you could just Google me from 1990. or maybe you get a good laugh looking at me now. That's probably more the way it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Before we went live on the, the podcast, uh, you caught me giggling because uh, right next door to the, um, the, the, the window that I've got open with this, this, uh, this stream going on, I actually have uh, some photos of you that I pulled off the internet. When we were doing Hurricane Alice, the band, obviously, that we've been talking about. And my, my word, the, uh, Ooh, the yeah. hair. <laughs>
1: Hurricane Alice. Hurricane Alice. Hurricane Alice, yeah. Uh... I had a little help with all that hair, but yes, Hurricane oh. Alice. There was also another band at the time that was, uh, we spelled our name H-E-R-I-C-A-N-E, and it was there was another band called Hurricane at the time, and they were going to sue us for the name, which we, I don't know how it would have gone, but it would have delayed the release of our record considerably. So Stevie Nicks had the idea, we'll just change the spelling to H-E-R. So that was a Stevie Nicks idea.
0: Wow, <laughs> there's some <laughs> trivia. That's good. So it's yes, <laughs> Hurricane, but Hurricane.
1: So then people would tease us. Yes, and still do, especially for me. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Some- hey, I don't know if you can see, it, but I still have one of these posters. Well, and maybe you can't see it. Uh, that poster behind me. There's World Series of Rock. It's got uh, White Snake, Skid Row, Great White, Bad English, and Hurricane Alice. Alpine Valley Music Theater, that was uh, Memorial Day many years ago.
0: That's a line. What, what year would that have been?
1: Oh boy, that's uh, what does it say on there? I would imagine 1990. And it's going back many. That happens to be the place, unfortunately, where uh, Steve Ravon's helicopter went down.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, because it's a ski resort. So it's yeah, it's beautiful when you're up there, you know. It's mountainous, and so I guess uh, up in the mountains, there's fog, there's mountains, and that. Uh, so this was after um, I played there. Oh. Just uh, getting back to
0: um, Hurricane Alice, listening to some of the stuff as I have been for uh. <laughs> This is some there's some blinding guitar playing on there. Uh, it really is. Yeah, it's technically but musically just just great, you know. Not just from a shred perspective, but you know, really well written solos, lots of attitude, uh, great big wide vibrato, big tapped runs, lots of speed picking. Um, just getting back to the GI thing for those people who are mm-hmm. listening to this who are uh, not familiar with GIT. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, I, I, I said GI. I should, I should have said GIT. Yeah. Um, Within the guitar community, young aspiring shredders of the the '90s, this thing became the stuff of legends. That you know, if you went, it was almost like a magic wand. That if you were within spitting distance of GIT in Hollywood, you would become an amazing player. You know, you just just by osmosis, you would be this. It's where the great players went. Could you could you explain to me just? or or explain to our our listeners what was so special about GIT, particularly Hollywood.
1: Well, it's imagine today, if I were to say to you, okay, for a year, you're going to go away to a place that's just completely musical and you're going to do nothing but practice your instrument and play music all day and all night for 12 months. That's what it is. It's like fantasy camp, you know, but it's for an in a uh, prolonged period of time. So you, you just, and I'm sure everybody who goes to the school now, they have their circle. I think like Matteo Sasato, mm-hmm. who's, you know, everybody's probably familiar with his playing, brilliant, brilliant guy. He went there and he was, you know, the outstanding student of the year when he was there. So I would imagine for my time, it was. Paul Gilbert and, uh, you know, others. I know Sinster Gates went there as well. And for the people that are there now, I'm sure there's that intense group of brilliant players right now. I just mentioned Mateo Sasato because I know he went there and I'm sure everybody who went there at the same time as he did have the same kind of strong feelings that, that I, I do. It's um, You can't replace that kind of experience I think that even if you are a bedroom musician, which, you know, <laughs> maybe I am now. <laughs> I've, turned in, I've turned into that. <laughs> uh, but uh, the experience of playing with other players uh, in band situations, on stage, having to learn songs, playing all day, going to classes and studying, And then at night hanging out with like-minded people, the school is open 24 hours. You could just go hang out there 24 hours or even if you're outside of school, going to the parties or whatever. It's it's just the environment, you know, it's uh, it's, of course, it's the building and it's Hollywood and that just gives everybody an excuse to go somewhere and forget about everything else in their life for a year or now they have two-year programs and four-year programs. But I guess it would be, you know, you could compare it to other college experiences. I mean, people usually talk fondly about their college days because it's such an intense time in your life. So for me, it was like music school was my my college.
0: <laughs> Are you just immersed in the guitar world, because I imagine that when you're not practicing and hanging out at the school at GIT, there's the, the places you go to hang out, the rainbow, the whiskey, you, you move from playing to then going out, and having beers and having, you know, parties, but hanging out with other musicians, watching other musicians. It's like a 24 seven in utero experience.
1: Yeah. And so to finally play at those clubs as well, the Troubadour, the whiskey, the Roxy, yes. Hanging out at the rainbow, all the stuff on the sunset strip. Uh, (laughs) Coconut teaser was a good one too. Uh, There was the cat house, uh, oh my God. I mean, it, it was really, uh, yeah, a fun hang. I mean, especially it got to be more fun once the band I was in got to be a little more popular, which was after I was a GIT student. Uh, because when I was a student, it was really just uh, having, I remember like, you know, if I could have like a pizza, I would be just so happy, you know? because it really was just living on nothing, but still loving it. But then, yeah, later being able to go out to the clubs and afford to, afford to go out a little more was kind of nice.
0: Yeah, spending all that money on the, the conditioner and the shampoo for <laughs> that amazing hair as well. <laughs>
1: oh, and, the, and the hair, its uh, yes, the hair, the shampoo, the hair, <laughs> the conditioner.
0: So on an average Highlands. level...
1: <laughs> <laughs> or uh, the, uh, the eyeliner, or as our drummer would say, the guy-liner yeah
0: guyliner yeah Guy liner. There's, uh, there's there's some some good good makeup going on uh, again i'm doing the the a b contrast between danny now and danny then
1: well it's funny if you look back at these old pictures uh everybody seems to have had the same stylist and the same style of photography you know it's just like that's what we were into man and uh yes so now <laughs> i got kids they they laugh at me and I'm sure when they have kids, their kids will laugh at them. <laughs> the circle of life.
0: The circle of life. <laughs> so, on the average night, say you're going out down the Sunset Strip, and again, this is where the stuff of legend comes. You know, if any any <laughs> Motley Crew videos to be believed, and I, I went there myself, and uh-huh. we were out uh, in Anaheim for Nam. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, you know, myself and uh, fellow Lick Librarians and GI um, contributor Nick Jennison had a. 24 hours in in Hollywood to yes. do do the thing to do the, the experience to explore to go to the rainbow to go to the whiskey and um, but when, Did it
1: live up to the legend
0: now you see it, it for me it didn't because in mm-hmm. my mind I expected it to be that I'd be thrust back into you know 1988 right. and that I'd walk into the rainbow and there would be you know in, slash would be there or you'd be this who's who you'd be bumping yeah. into famous musicians. I wanted to ask you, was it like that then? So you finish school on Saturday night, you go to the rainbow.
1: Yeah, it was definitely like that then. And of course you wouldn't want it to be like that now. It'd be kind of sad if everybody from the eighties was hanging out at the rainbow still, you know, everything has its time. So uh, I certainly wouldn't want to still be living in that time, but it was, Yeah, all those guys were there. That's my age group. I mean, I remember Slash waiting to pick somebody up at the gym, holiday spa, and having his, like, leather pants on and everything, and, like, he had, like, basically, like, his stage gear, and it's hot in L.A. It's hot, and it was before Guns N' Roses was anything, you know, and you look like, what is wrong with this dude? (laughs) But uh, yeah, so now looking back, it's like, oh man, that's slash mad respect. I should have tried to talk to them.
0: That's so cool. That's so cool. yeah so, so you, you walk into the the rainbow or you go down on the sunset strip of an average night, but you're always going to be surrounded by the guys that mean something, you know these, these big name players who are constantly going to be an inspiration to to remind you that you, you're there for a reason that you're living on uh, you know 99 cent tacos. Yeah every day for for that reason.
1: Yeah, and so for uh, me, the Sunset Strip thing and and being in a band, that's what was the tie-in. I don't know if I would have been so into that whole scene if it wasn't that I was in a band and hanging out with my gang and passing out flyers to gigs and putting, I mean, people used to post flyers on top of flyers on every single poll. I mean, I remember the best band at that was Poison. I mean, they would just inundate. They were like everywhere, but that's what you did. You had your 1500 flyers or whatever and you go out and flyer and then you'd end up at the bar. <laughs> so we would just post them, give them to everybody who walked by, you put them on every single car and do whatever you could to do, do to promote your gig. Um, because if you had a gig at the whiskey or wherever you would at the you know, end of the call to pay to play thing, and it's probably still going on in to some degree, which is, you know, somewhat fair The clubs need to see that people are going to come <laughs> into the club, but It's, yeah, you can play here, but you've got to sell a hundred tickets. So you can sell them to your friends for $7 each, or you can just buy them yourself and you owe us $700 no matter what, if you want to play here. (laughs) So in addition to, you know, wanting to have a great crowd, you kind of had to go out there and make sure people came to your gigs.
0: Yeah. Doing the legwork. It's it's different from, the culture of today where bands, original bands, up and coming bands have been asked to play for exposure, for uh, opportunity. Yeah. Um, at least in the day there was there was an element of honesty to it that, you know, you had to you had to prove your worth by selling so many tickets or fronting the money yourself. Uh, you, you know, if you owe a club $750, you, you're going to get the people there, you know, come hell or high water. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's right. Please buy my ticket. <laughs>
0: So, just, uh, just to bring, bring things back a little to GIT to talk about your playing, because again, listening to your playing on record back in the day, and obviously, you know, still a phenomenal player now, you, you delivered some incredible playing. So, do you think that this utter immersion in um, that, that world, that guitar world of playing 24 7, going to GIT and having this, this tuition, That 12 months, that must have really changed your playing.
1: Yeah. And uh, I mean, it definitely hanging out with like Paul Gilbert. uh, I figured out that uh, I really need to figure out how to alternate pick. You know, you got to remember too, like this was before there was internet and you could go on YouTube and you could see every amazing guitar player in the world do everything. Um, But yeah, I mean, the, I should, say that you're very kind to say all that stuff but it's like when i look at my own playing like i i play man i i i try i work at it i i love doing it but i mean i feel like i have barely scratched the surface of what is good (laughs) you know i guess you have these little moments but uh if I look back on that, uh, some sometimes I look back on that stuff and I say that, yeah, that was, I could tell I was practicing, that was all right. But also, as you play more, you try and do other things as well, you know, instead of just being a rock player, you want to incorporate, you want to learn about other things, whether you incorporate them or not. I'm quite
0: fascinated by this idea that you're at GIT and. All the guys have pointy guitars, and it's Paul Gilbert. There's Scott Henderson. There's there's Frank Gambale. But it's still a place where guys are. It's not like a shred academy. People are learning to be musicians, great mm-hmm. guitar players. Is it, was that the case?
1: It was everything you wanted. It you could find whatever you wanted. For me, I was into the Paul Gilbert line. If you wanted to do the. Chet Atkins, there would be like a Chet Atkins guy. If you wanted to do a country thing, there was you know Steve Steve Trabato, who's you know amazing country guy you could hang out with. Or Gampali was there for a while. Or Norman Brown was doing the jazz thing, and Joe Diorio was doing the jazz thing. So it was really you could you'd have like uh, basic stuff that you would have to do some reading, some ear training. Uh, depending on your level they put you in the right group um single string you know learn your scales (laughs) rhythm guitar know your chords know some basic harmony and theory stuff but then after that you kind of float to wherever you you gravitated naturally towards
0: that's great that's really good so it's it's the kind of thing that i think now is is almost in the age of youtube and Online lessons like Lick Library, where it's all presented for you. Of course, that wasn't there in in the late eighties, nineties. In order to have that experience and have all of this at your fingertips, you know, it's right there for you. I remember when I was a kid, there was books. You know, um, we had you had lessons, and you had tab books, and you had guitar magazines, mm-hmm. and you had your buddies. And that was your that was all you had. You couldn't go and experience this world unless you had something like GIT. And this is I think why for my generation it became that stuff of legend, because it was it was the only place you could have this experience. Now we've got, you know, Lick Library, for example, as a as a platform. You can go and you can spend all day exploring country lessons or jazz lessons or you can learn to comp, be a good rhythm player. You can learn songs by Metallica. You can really go nuts and you can live that life almost online. Not the same, of course.
1: Yeah. I mean, like I said, I wouldn't want to look back like too much with rose-colored glasses. I mean, but it was a special time. But right now, everybody's living in you know an amazing time as well because everything is at your disposal. I guess the hard part is probably there's so much information. What is it? No, having like a direction of knowing what you want to focus on, I think can be very difficult when there's so much information out there. It's like, and I get like that. I get, you know, you click on you or you go to YouTube and then things that you've clicked on before, they know your algorithm, things will come up and you'll click on uh, Mateo Sasato. Like, oh my God, that's, yes. How do you... I, I got to do that. How did he do that? And then there's something else that's, you know, a country thing. How, how did you do that? And there's a Guthrie Govan thing. And Oh, I want to do that. And it gets to be uh, almost like too much.
0: Like <laughs> one of those uh, all-you-can-eat buffets. Yeah. There's Mexican food, there's Chinese food. And, and you, you do that thing, if you're like me, you're there and you think, I need to eat it all yeah and it's kind of like this with guitar where you, you you see everything on offer and you think i need to have all of this i need to be good at all of this or i need to
1: consume all of this so um, what's the what's the trick what's the healthy compromise to that i mean for me i think and this is something i haven't really done so much in a while but it's um having a set list of material and performing it for people if you're interested in everything, <laughs> kind of like I am, a little schizophrenic, little country, little jazz, whatever, have some songs that you can just play, whether it's just playing for someone in your house or playing for a small gathering group of friends with acoustic guitar, but have a set of some songs that you can present to people. Because uh, I think that's the most rewarding thing. And that's also what will allow you to get better is playing for people you know one gig is worth a, you know i don't know how, however many hour you want to compare it but it's worth a lot of bedroom hours you know if you can just get one gig or one small performance in front of people that's really valuable
0: you get that confirmation that affirmation yeah you. so you, you're good you're doing well people want to hear you play yeah uh, it's right. powerful.
1: And it forces you to uh, to to focus on something. It as a you know instead of a little bit here, a little bit there. If you actually have something that you have a goal, that's uh, I think that's important.
0: Yeah, and, and with that, I think that brings us to uh, to the end of our, our podcast. Um, that's, that's, some, that's a good, good piece of wisdom to end on. I like that. <laughs> so, Danny, I'd like to thank you again for for giving us your time, uh, sharing this this amazing story with us as well. Um, I, I am now going to go and listen to some late eighties rock. Um, <laughs> everyone, go and check out Hurricane Alice. It's it's well worth it. And some again some uh blinding guitar playing and some some wonderful hair to look at as well Uh. yeah
1: there was some good stuff from back then there was like the Nuno Betancourt uh, of course any Paul Gilbert there's all the shrapnel guys Ingve just kind of set the world on fire when he first came out you know it's uh and of course Satriani and the mighty Van Halen I'm looking at my pictures I have above I've got uh, my hero wall I've got Eddie Van Halen Hendrix Jimmy Page and Scott Henderson
0: yeah that that, that would be a jam session right there (laughs) well Danny thank you so much thank you for your time today and uh, yeah everyone listening happy rocking and uh, we'll see you for the next podcast
1: Right. thanks for having me